Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have three new movies to review for you. Two of them are brand new. One was released in theaters nationwide this week, and the other one was released on Netflix on October 28th, 2022. And the last movie came out a couple of weeks ago, so I'm a little late to the party on this one, but I'm late to so many parties because I only have so much time in a week and I only have so many movies to review. You know the story. But the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you may be the best movie of the year. It's certainly the best movie I've seen so far this year. But then again, we've got eight weeks left in the year, so I can't exactly say that this will be the best movie of the year, but it's very, very close. It will probably be in my top five. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Till. This is the true story about how Emmett Till was murdered in a brutal lynching, and his mother, who is played in this movie by Danielle Deadweiler, she plays Mamie Till Mobley, and the movie focuses primarily on her and how she vows to expose the racism behind the attack while working to have those involved brought to justice. The woman who directed this movie is... Chinonye Chukwu, and this is her third feature film that she has directed. She previously directed a movie called Alaska Land in 2012, which I didn't see, and a movie in 2019 that came out on Netflix. I don't know if it's on Netflix anymore, but the movie is called Clemency, and it stars Alfre Woodard. But Till is probably her most, uh, her highest profile movie to date, and not just her highest profile feature-length film, but this is a movie that uses 27 years of research by Keith Bochamp, and Keith Bochamp is an American filmmaker who not only makes films, but also had efforts that led to the reopening of the Emmett Till case by the United States Department of Justice in 2004, because without really spoiling anything, Emmett Till was senselessly murdered by two men in Mississippi, two white men, and these two were charged with the murder of Emmett Till, but as this movie details, without really spoiling very much, these two men were found not guilty. However, they later admitted to a magazine that they did kill Emmett Till, and because of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibits double jeopardy, which is not being charged for the same crime twice, they couldn't be recharged for that murder. Those two men are both dead. At least one of them died of cancer, and they are probably rotting in hell, to which I say good riddance to both of them. But it still doesn't undo what happened. And Till is a movie that it, that was a long time in the making, but it was... It's well worth seeing it right now. As I was watching the film, I was actually reminded of the 2016 movie Detroit, which also details racial injustice going on in Detroit, Michigan. And that movie was also directed by a celebrated female director, in this case, Academy Award winner Catherine Bigelow. But for some reason, even though I thought it was the best film of 2016, it was overlooked by the Academy and did not make a lot of critics' top 10 lists. I don't think Till is a movie that you can ignore, and at least I hope you don't ignore it. And also... The movie details very well not only how Emmett Till was murdered and the circumstances that led up to his murder, but also the grieving and the frustration that Mamie Till Mobley ultimately had to deal with later on in her life after the death of her son. And the movie takes you from the very beginning where Emmett Till, who's played by Jalen Hall, is well-situated in Chicago, and he goes down to Mississippi to visit relatives, and he takes a lot of warning from his mother that 
even though they do face a fair amount of discrimination in Chicago, Mississippi is much worse, and you really have to watch what you say and how you look at white people down there. And Emma Till, as you might expect from an adolescent boy, is just saying, yeah, yeah, I, I know what's going on. And the circumstances that led to Emma Till's murder are depicted here. And part of me wanted to didn't want to see the circumstances, what made Emma Till a target to the white people who ultimately murdered him. I think it, it probably would have been better told rather than shown. I don't really say that very much for a, a lot of movies, especially since one principle, um, one principle factor of storytelling that makes storytelling more effective is showing, not telling. But in this case, the what Emma Till allegedly said to a, a white um, female shopkeeper that led to his senseless murder is still kind of ambiguous. Some accounts say he didn't really do anything at all. It was just the way he looked at this woman. Others says that he cockily said, bye, baby, and some, and he made a whistle. And the movie depicts the latter event. And I, I don't exactly know. I think because of the circumstances ambiguity, for that reason, it would have been better told rather than shown. But not the circumstances that led up to his ultimate capture and murder. But the movie, I think, makes up for it very well by showing the grieving that Mamie Till Mobley ultimately does, as well as her trying, her going down to Mississippi and not only testifying at the trial of the murder of Emmett Till, but also trying to determine what happened and if circumstances could have been ultimately avoided by her extended family down in Mississippi. It's a lot to take in, and the scenes where Mamie Till Mobley is grieving publicly and privately over the death of her son are very heartfelt. And Danielle Deadweiler is an actress who I wasn't ultimately familiar with when I came into the movie. In fact, as I saw her picture on the uh, posters... I was trying to figure out who she was, but rest assured after seeing this movie, you will know who she is. And I didn't think I'd seen her in any movies, but as it turns out, there was one uh, Netflix original film in which she co-starred that was called the harder they fall, which was a black Western that came out last year. But when you have a starring cast that includes Idris Elba, Regina King, and other uh, Zazie Beats and other such actors, it's easy to see how an a, a relatively lesser known actress like Danielle Deadweiler would get lost in the shuffle there. That's the only movie in which I'd seen her, but rest assured, she, she acts so well in this movie. And if she does not get an Academy Award for Best Actress in a Leading Role for this movie, that would be. That would be such an injustice for the Academy. In other words, th that would be probably the biggest snub of the century. She's amazing in this film. And there are a lot of other great actors in this movie as well, including Frankie Faison, Whoopi Goldberg, Jalen Hall, I think does a, a great job portraying Emmett Till and could possibly get a nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role as well. But it's a movie that is two hours and 20 minutes that Honestly, even though it's a very heavy topic and there are more sad scenes in this film than happy ones, it seems like the two hours and 20 minutes goes by really, really fast. And it's an amazing film. Certainly what I think is going to be in my top five best movies of the year. It could possibly be even the best movie of the year, but the year's not over yet, so time will tell. But there's no denying that Till is a powerful film until it gets my rating of a very enthusiastic and certified knockout. It is a 
it, it details a very ugly chapter in American history, particularly when it comes to race relations and the gross miscarriage of injustice that occurred back in the 50s in the Deep South. But obviously, we as a society have a long way to go, but we've certainly come a long way as well. But it is very shameful when you read the written epilogue at the end of the film, particularly where it said that lynching actually did not become a crime in America until 2002. And and the circumstances into how Emmett Till was actually murdered are a, a bit vague in this film, but his body was found... Uh, washed up on the shores of the Tallahatchie River. What happened to him to cause that death? Was it drowning? Maybe not necessarily so, but it's still, he might have been lynched. He might not have. He might have been beaten to death. He might not have, but the point is he was murdered. We know the two people who actually did murder him. We also know some of the other people, black and white, who were complicit in his murder. And... There's really not much else to say. The circumstances in this movie are ugly. The movie itself is very heavy, very hard to watch, but honestly, one of the best films of the year, no doubt. A story that absolutely has to be told. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Wendell and Wild, which is a movie that is directed by Henry Selleck, and this is his first film that he has directed in 13 years. Henry Selleck is known for directing mainly animated films, specifically stop-motion animated films, which can sometimes be inaccurately described as claymation, but Henry Selleck doesn't exactly do claymation because claymation is another copyrighted term. It is stop-motion animation, but it's uh, somebody. It's Will Vinton's animation company. But if you're mistaking Henry Selleck's work for claymation, you're definitely not alone, but I'm just explaining to you the difference here. But Henry Selleck has directed such memorable films previously as The Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, and the last movie he directed before this one, Coraline. Coraline came out almost 13, or excuse me, more than 13 years ago. What took Henry Selleck so long to make another film? Well, stop-motion animation takes a very, very long time to do. In fact... Not only do you have a full-time animation team on the project, if you're lucky, but it takes one animator about four, um, an eight-hour day to create four to five seconds of a stop-motion animation project. Not necessarily a full-length movie. Sometimes uh, the very few shows that incorporate stop-motion animation as well, which aren't very many in this day of CGI, but it's... Even more of an art form now that director Henry Selleck is able to incorporate stop-motion animation with a little assistance from CGI animation into his movies. And Wendell and Wilde is actually based on a book that has not yet been published, but will be. And it's one that Henry Selleck wrote along with Clay McLeod Chapman. But Jordan Peele assisted Henry Selleck in the screenplay adaptation of this film. And the movie is about two scheming demon brothers whose names are Wendell and Wilde who enlist the aid of 13-year-old Cat Elliot to summon them to the land of the living. And this movie is unique for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't think there has been a stop-motion animated film that featured primarily African-American characters. Uh, at least not that I know of. There certainly have been hand-drawn animated films as well as CGI animated films. Not a, a heck of a lot, but there have been some notable ones 
that feature African-American characters, but this is the first one that I can remember that is stop-motion animated. And it also helps that Jordan Peele not only wrote the screenplay and provides the voice of the demon brother Wild. Let me just confirm that. Yep, Jordan Peele is the voice of Wild, And Wendell uh, is voiced by Keegan-Michael Key. So it's Key and Peele together again after splitting up uh, momentarily after doing the hit Comedy Central show, Key and Peele. And they work incredibly well together. They're like the new millennial uh, Abbott and Costello. And here, they're not only creepy, but they're also very funny. So this movie, I think very much like Coraline, is a film that is very uh, heavy on the visuals, but not heavy to the point where it'll turn you off, but also like Coraline, it has a lot of creepy visuals as well. And there are scenes in this film that I thought were even darker and even more uh, creepy than what you saw in Coraline. And that's probably the reason why Wendell and Wilde is is rated PG-13, because there are some scenes that could potentially traumatize somebody under the age of 13, and not just the supernatural. There's a scene at the very beginning where we're introduced to Cat Elliot when she's eight years old, and she's driving with her parents in a rainstorm. And her parents, uh, her, her father actually, who's behind the wheel, accidentally drives off a bridge because of his limited vision, and Cat's mother g- gets her to go out the window, and she says, we will follow you. <laughs> but Cat Elliot survives her um, car crash, her parents do not. Watching this as a 39-year-old, what it, it was kind of harrowing to, to see this, even though I knew these were animated characters, but I could only imagine how Cat Elliot, if she were a real person, would feel after uh, being exposed to this kind of trauma. But anyway, Cat grows up a few more years, and she is orphaned, And her 13-year-old self is voiced by Lyric Ross, and she's sent to a reform school run by Catholic nuns. Most of these nuns are very strict, except for Sister Helly, who's voiced by Angela Bassett. Not only is Sister Helly very charismatic and serves as an allied cat, but she also is familiar enough with the occult and the supernatural to recognize a hand, uh, a print on Cat's hand that looks like teeth. And you ultimately find that this connects Cat to the demons Wendell and Wild, who are orderlies who work for this giant demon by the name of Buffalo Belzer, who's voiced by Ving Rhames, who we haven't seen in a movie in quite some time. So this movie has a lot of creepy visuals since it deals with demons and ghosts, And maybe it might not be too fun for kids or at least children under the age of uh, 18, excuse me, under 13. But I think it does serve as a Halloween movie. And considering some of the other Halloween films that have come out so far that have been a little too kiddie or a little too, uh, were played it a little too safe, like Hocus Pocus 2, for example, uh, Wendell and Wilde, I thought, was A... Um, it serves as an asset that it's based on an original story by the director himself. And B, the visuals, not to mention the stop-motion animation, uh, are flawless and quite amazing. I certainly love the character of Cat. I also loved Wendell and Wilde, both being creepy as well as being um, (laughs) visually appealing and funny. I also really liked the... The um, some of the other cast members who were serving as uh, voice actors here, like James Hong, plays the leader of this uh, reform school. His name is Father Bests, and he actually has a significant role as the movie progresses and delves more into the supernatural. There's also uh, some antagonists who are of the living world, and without giving away too much, one of the antagonists, who's a guy... Uh, looks a little like a certain controversial politician, or maybe two controversial politicians. But regardless, 
there might be some connections that Fox News might take and run with as being symptomatic of liberal Hollywood. But what matters is not this movie's political leaning, which is slight. What matters is the movie's imagination, its originality, its complex and very appealing characters who are both good and bad, not to mention its amazing animation and a welcome return to form for Henry Selleck, which is why I give Wendell and Wild my rating of a knockout. It is a unique and original animated film, and that's saying a lot in a move in a in a year that have had several animated movies that have been of high quality, including the bad guys and turning red just as an example. But I would love to see Wendell and wild get nominated for an Oscar for best animated feature. I think it certainly deserves it. And it's certainly a good return to form for both Henry Selleck, as well as key and peel themselves. And the fact that key and peel reruns are going to be streaming on Netflix in early November, Uh, It might be a bit of a coincidence, but it's a good coincidence when combined with this film that I would imagine people will watch again and again every Halloween after this. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Tar. This is the latest film starring Kate Blanchett. And this is a movie that came out a few weeks ago. It's been it's won a number of awards from in festivals such as the Venice Film Festival and the Telluride Film Festival. And it came out in theaters nationwide on October 7th. 2022. I'm a little bit late to the party to review it, but if you knew the schedule that I had, you would probably forgive me for my lapse in reviewing some new films over others. So as I said, Kate Blanchett stars in this film as the titular Lydia Tarr, and it's set in the international world of Western classical music. And Lydia Tarr in this film is widely considered one of the greatest living composer slash conductors and the first ever female music director of a major German orchestra. And Lydia Tarr at the very beginning of this film has a lot going for her. Not only is she celebrated in the classical music world, but very much like the three tenors and Andrea Bocelli. She also has a bit of celebrity outside of the classical music world. So very much like Luciano Pavarotti, you don't have to closely follow classical music or listen to NPR or watch public television to know who Lydia Tarr is. She's not exactly doing uh, remixes with P Diddy, but she has enough credibility on the inside and the outside of the classical music world so that she is world-renowned, including amongst people who don't follow classical music. And Kate Blanchett plays this character so well, both in her um, high times and also her low times. And the movie begins to show that the cracks in the facade of her celebrated um, reputation begin to form, particularly when there is a recent suicide of another up-and-coming classical music composer who is following in the footsteps of Lydia Tarr. What Lydia Tarr actually has to do with that suicide is not immediately apparent, but the it, it, it ultimately begins to reveal itself when there are people, including those who are investigating this composer's uh, suicide, that see that Lydia Tarr may or may not have had a hand in this other composer ultimately taking your own life. And you could say that somebody's suicide is nobody's fault but but their own, but the movie begins to show that maybe things are not all on the up and up in terms of Lydia Tarr's reputation and the character of hers 
that follows. It's a very complex film and one that runs actually at two hours, 40 minutes, which is quite long for a mainstream movie these days. But Kate Blanchett does an amazing job playing Lydia Tarr, both her good times and her bad times. And the, the director and writer of this movie is Todd Field, who has been, uh, acting and directing in films for quite some time. The last film he actually directed before this movie was the film Little Children, starring Kate Blanchett and featuring a comeback performance from a very unlikely former child actor named Jackie Earl Haley, who was nominated for uh, his role in that film. What took uh, Todd Field so long to direct this movie? I don't exactly know, but when you listen to a lot of the dialogue in the film, particularly that which is spoken effortlessly by Kate Blanchett, you could probably tell that this movie was not very easy to write. Sure, maybe the story involving the celebrated classical music composer's life, maybe that was easier to write, but the dialogue is very smart and very well done. So much, in fact, that I began to think as I was seeing this film, and I didn't know who wrote it, that maybe, just maybe, Aaron Sorkin had a hand in writing the dialogue here. It wasn't actually Aaron Sorkin. Was Todd Field um, inspired by Aaron Sorkin at all? I don't exactly know, but it reminded me of Aaron Sorkin in his best movies and TV shows where he writes really smart dialogue for really smart characters. And as the movie details, even though Lydia Tarr is very um, auspiciously celebrated, uh, she's not particularly well celebrated by just about everyone, including those whom she teaches or for uh, who work underneath her. And I'm not going to give away some of the scenes. Some of the scenes are, are, are practically perfect. And it's not just the dialogue, but it's also the way the supporting characters react to her. But I think this is one of Kate Blanchett's best performances. It may be her very best. I can say for certain that is certainly a lot better a performance that she makes in this film than she did in Blue Jasmine, for which she ultimately won the Academy Award for Best Actress. Is it better than the other uh, film for which she won an Academy Award, which was the Aviator, where she won for Best Supporting Actress for portraying Katherine Hepburn. That's really hard to say, but rest assured, her performance of Tar is up there. It, it probably is one of her top three best performances in a, a decades-long repertoire of great performances. And if it hadn't been for Danielle Deadweiler's amazing performance as Mamie Till Mobley in Till... I would say that Kate Blanchett has a great chance of winning the Oscar uh, for Best Actress for this film. I don't know, compared to Danielle Deadweiler, if she should win, but she should most certainly be nominated. My only grievance with this film was, at 2 hours 38 minutes running time, it did run a little long, particularly towards the end. I think there were a handful of scenes that... Uh, probably should have been cut from the final film. There's one scene near the end of the film, it's not at the very end, where Lydia Tarr visits her childhood home. She goes through all her old video cassettes and her trophies, and she finds a video cassette of another composer. I think it's probably Leonard Bernstein, uh, which this movie uh, says uh, of whom Lydia Tarr is a a later protege of Leonard Bernstein, but the way she reacts when she's watching the film, I think the film should have ended right there, but it didn't. There are some scenes that go on afterwards. And while those scenes are of higher quality, I think the movie probably would have been better if it just ended right there. I felt the same way about a uh, one particular scene in the movie AI, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, which could have ended on a very somber note in a scene that I won't give away, I'll just say it's the scene with the Blue Fairy, and that's all I'm going to say. But it could have ended right there, and the fact that it extended further did upset a lot of people. It didn't exactly upset me, but I didn't think the scenes afterwards were entirely appropriate. But with that said, I do think that Tar works very well as a character study film. 
it, it is long and there are scenes that drag. Um, and it's certainly not for the movie going public who would see the Marvel cinematic universe movies, but Kate Blanchett shines in every scene she's in. As a matter of fact, I think she is literally in every scene in this film. And there are some shots that are not cut at all. It's just her continuing to converse about classical music. And it's amazing how profound and how intelligent her character is. She's certainly in the 1% of people who are intelligent, but as this movie demonstrates, her emotions do undermine her success, her continued success in the classical music realm. So Tar does have its weakness in the fact that it's done some extra credit in the later scenes, but Tar still gets my rating of a knockout because any weakness that this film has, some of its draggy scenes, some of the extra scenes in the end, are more than made up for by the very smart screenplay by director Todd Field, as well as the primary performance of Kate Blanchett. She earns this, she, yeah, she not only earns this, this role, but she also owns the film and it's not the first film in which she's owned, but it's certainly one of those films that if she died tomorrow, hopefully she doesn't, but I'm just saying hypothetically, if she does, this would be a great note on which to go out, but hopefully that doesn't happen. But Tar is an amazing tour de force performance that I can't recommend more than I already have. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, or at least the first part of my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of October 31st through November 4th, 2022. And it's a bit bittersweet for me to read this list because on November 3rd, 2022, I will be turning 40. Yep. <laughs> my 30s are coming to an end this coming week. My God, it is blowing my mind. And I'm actually going into my ninth year of doing this show. This is actually my third year doing this show in Nashville. I started the show in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, back in 2014. And what's, uh, r really interesting. I, I said before that when I started the show in 2014, I had a girlfriend and a couple weeks later we broke up and my listening audience, uh, <laughs> just dove by 50%. So <laughs> I just thought you might like to know that, but I've come a very long way with this show and in my life, but my God, it is amazing that I am turning 40. I just don't know what to say. So it's, it's a little bit bittersweet that my thirties are ending, but let me just get into the movies that are coming out in theaters while I am seeing my youth reaches twilight. Anyway, on November 2nd, the day before I turned 40, there is a movie that's subject to being released in theaters. I don't know if this is going to be released in theaters in the United States, but as you might imagine, it is not American film. It is, I believe it is a Chinese film. And the movie is called The Monkey King. Um, okay, I, I just actually... Yes, it is a Chinese film. The movie is called The Monkey King, The Legend Begins. And I've heard a lot about The Monkey King. I'm not exactly uh, very familiar with it, but it is a reimagined version by Hollywood. Okay, so this is directed by a Chinese director, but it is 
made in Hollywood, I guess. And it is a reimagined version of the film The Monkey King, Havoc in Heaven's Palace, the origin and birthplace of the Monkey King story. The movie stars Donnie Yen, Chow Yun-Fat, Aaron Kwok, Peter Ho, and Kelly Chen, amongst other people. I know Chow Yun-Fat very well, particularly from movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I don't know Johnny, uh, excuse me, Donnie Yen. He might be um, a, an actor who's more familiar to Chinese audiences. I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but I'll try my best, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I do see it. On November 4th, 2022, the day after I turn 40. Yep, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's how it is. Uh, there are three films that are subject to being released in theaters, two of which I am quite certain are going to be released in American theaters. And the biggest one that, that will be subject to be released in American theaters on November 4th is called Armageddon Time. And no, it is not about an asteroid that falls from the sky and wreaks havoc on Earth. It's actually a deeply personal coming-of-age story about the strength of family and the generational pursuit of the American dream. It is directed by and written by James Gray, who I'm honestly not familiar with, but it looks like he has been uh, directing films for quite some time. Amongst the feature-length films he's directed include Little Odessa from 1994, The Yards from 2000, We Own the Night from 2007, Two Lovers from 2008, The Immigrant from 2013, and Ad Astra from 2019. I think uh, that just about does it for his um, movies, uh, the movies that he has um, directed that are feature-length. Many of them have, I haven't seen. The exception has been Ad Astra, which came out in theaters in 2019 and starred Brad Pitt. And the movie had some weaknesses, but I actually liked how the movie d- developed a realistic sci-fi universe, you know, potentially 100 years in the future where you could travel to the moon as easily as you could travel to Cleveland. I thought that was interesting, but... Uh, yeah, the movie dragged a little bit, but this movie looks like it has some promise in terms of its commercial viability as well as its potential um, Oscar caliber. And I'm not saying necessarily that it will be uh, nominated for Oscars. I don't know, but it has a very promising uh, chance at being nominated as the supporting cast includes Anne Hathaway, Anthony Hopkins, who plays Grandpa Aaron Rabinowitz. Anthony Hopkins playing Jewish. Hmm. I, I don't know how that's going to work, but that's uh, going to be interesting. Um, there's Jessica Chastain also co-stars in the movie. Uh, her name is Marianne Trump. And there is uh, another actor playing Fred Trump, who's played by John Deal. Are these Trumps that are related to our, our former presidents? Probably because that would be more than a coincidence that the um, character would be named Fred Trump. Uh, So this looks like a movie that it might be historical fiction. I don't exactly know any more about it other than the synopsis that I just read to you. But this is a movie that I will see and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that looks like it has more commercial viability is a film that's called A Magical Christmas Village. And this is a movie that is subject to being released in theaters also on November 4th, 2022. It follows Summer's life as her mother Vivian and daughter Chloe move in with her. Vivian sets up a miniature Christmas village. And as Chloe begins setting up the figurines, real life events seem to mimic the scenes she creates. And the movie stars Luke McFarlane, Marlo Thomas, who we haven't seen in a movie in quite some time, but we've seen her on the St. Jude commercials for sure. Allison Sweeney, uh, Mesa Nicholson, Maria Meadows, Madonna Gonzalez, and Kareem Malcolm. Other than Luke McFarlane, Marlo Thomas, and Allison Sweeney, I'm not familiar with many of the other actors that are in this film. But the movie is directed by Jason Furukawa, Furukawa, who is obviously of Japanese descent, but he might uh, be an American. I don't exactly know the 
site that I'm looking at is not telling me. But in terms of feature-length films, he this is actually his first film, if you don't count, a TV movie that he directed in 2015 called Killer Photo. Before this, he directed, oh, another um, TV movie in 2008 called My Babysitter is an Alien. But other than that, he's directed TV episodes. So it's unusual that a film like this would be released in theaters based on the TV credentials of its director. But it looks certainly like a very interesting film, or at least it sounds like it. But the website I'm looking at is not giving me very much other information other than the cast and the basic plot. But if I see this movie in theaters, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The final film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 4th, 2022, is a film that's called Missing. This is directed by Shinzo Katayama and is a film that is native to Japan. Following the death of his wife, Shantoshi has sunk into depression and debt, much to the consternation of his daughter, high school student Cade. To ease their debt, Santoshi tells Cade he will track down a serial killer and collect the the reward. I guess desperate times call for desperate measures. But Santoshi disappears and Cade must find out what happened to him. I'm getting chills just reading about this. What appears to be a familiar mystery narrative, if you want to call it familiar, takes unexpected turns into the depths of human emotion. So I got to look at the genres that this film covers because it not ultimately um, apparent to me. It's obviously a crime drama and a mystery. Could it take on supernatural elements? Possibly. It sounds like a very interesting film, but because it's a native Japan film, it is unlikely, mildly unlikely, that this film will be released in a theater near me or near you. But I'll look out for it, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've gone through all the films that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of October 31st through November 4th, 2022, now it's time for me to get to my next segment of What's Coming Up Next, where I give you a spoken word preview of the movies that are subject to being released on streaming for for that week that I just mentioned. October 31st through November 4th, 2022. And there are a handful of films that are going to be released on Netflix for that week. There are a ton of them that are going to be coming out on Netflix on November 1st. I'm going to try to sift through all the TV series because there are so, so many of them because this is words on film, not world words on TV. And the reason that I don't review TV shows is a, I'm not a TV critic. I'm a movie critic and B TV shows take a long time to watch. If I were to watch one season of stranger things, for example, that would be the equivalent of watching a nine hour movie. Not that I would be against watching a nine hour movie necessarily, but I have a full-time job and a couple of part-time jobs on the side. In addition to this radio show. So I just don't have time, but On November 1st, Netflix is going to be releasing a few films, uh, some original, some not. Dolphin Tale from 2011, which co-starred Morgan Freeman, but Morgan Freeman, of course, doesn't take top billing. The Dolphin does, um, is going to be released on Netflix on November 1st. It's not a Netflix original because it came out 11 years ago, but it is a kid's family movie about a friendship between a boy and a dolphin with a wounded tail. It's a movie I haven't seen, but maybe I'll take a look at it, but it's not going to be one of the films that I will be reviewing for you on next week's show. There's another film coming out on Netflix on November 1st called Man on a Ledge. This is a 10-year-old film about a man played by Sam Worthington, who is a police psychologist 
hoping to talk down an ex-con who's looking to jump off a hotel roof. Sam Worthington is one of those underrated actors. He starred in one of the highest grossing films of all time, Avatar, and I think he'll be in the sequel that will be coming out this Christmas. But Man on a Ledge is a movie I won't I won't review for you on next week's show, but if you're looking to uh, see it, it's on Netflix on November 1st, Tuesday. Moneyball, starring Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, is also being released on Netflix. This is about Billy Bean, uh, a real person and a baseball team general manager who develops an ingenious new method of recruiting that works out very well for the team that he is general manager of, the Oakland Athletics. Notting Hill will be also released on Netflix on November 1st. That stars Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts in a British-set romantic comedy, which is very funny. Uh, Tom Cruise will star in Oblivion, which is a nine-year-old movie. It's about a drone repairman stationed on what remains of Earth. I'm surprised I actually haven't seen that film, but it's just one of those films to which I didn't get around. Still Alice will also be released on Netflix on November 1st. This earned Julianne Moore her first Oscar, and it's very easy to see why, because she plays a linguistics professor who's diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, putting her life in turmoil. This is an amazing performance by Julianne Moore and also has some really great supporting performances by Alec Baldwin and Kristen Stewart as well. So see that movie if you can. As for me, I've already reviewed it years ago. Another movie I've already reviewed is The Bad Guys. This is an animated film that came out earlier this year and it's making its first appearance on Netflix on November 1st, 2022. It's a DreamWorks animated film about a Cracker Jack criminal crew of animal outlaws who are about to attempt their most challenging con yet, becoming model citizens. I won't give away the entire film, but it's one of the best animated films of the year in a year of great animated movies, and I really enjoyed it, not to mention Sam Rockwell was great as the voice of the uh, the wolf, the ringleader of the bad guys. Other films that are coming out include The Bodyguard, starring Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston, The Ghost, which is actually an Indian film that was released this year, and it's its um, video-on-demand debut here on Netflix about a former agent who unleashes his lethal skills to protect his sister. There's also The Legend of Zorro, which is the sequel to The Mask of Zorro, the latter film that came out in 1998, and the former film came out in 2005. It has Antonio Banderas reprising his role as the titular Zorro, and I don't think uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones was in this movie, but then again, I haven't seen it. The 1994 film The Little Rascals, which was directed by Penelope Spiris, is also appearing on Netflix in addition to the 2014 <coughs> uh, direct-to-video film The Little Rascals Save the Day. There's also the two Pink Panther films starring Steve Martin as Inspector Clouseau, cleverly titled The Pink Panther from 2006, which co-stars Beyonce, and The Pink Panther 2 from 2009. <clears throat> I didn't see either of those films, but following Peter Sellers and even following uh, Alan Arkin is not a very easy task to do. Also, there is a, a Netflix original film, which is called The Takeover. This is a Dutch action crime movie about a hacker who has been framed for murder. I usually put my... Uh, the Netflix original films that are foreign on the lower part of my list, not because I'm xenophobic, but because I only have so much time to review certain films. So I can't guarantee that I'm going to see the takeover, but it's on the Netflix queue beginning on November 1st. So if you want to see it, by all means, I'll see it. If I'll review it for you, if I see it on next week's show and the other films that are going to be released on Netflix on November 1st, none of which are original films, include Think Like a Man from 2012, To Russia with Love, which is a 2022 film that's a F Filipino romantic comedy. It's not the James Bond movie, believe it or not. Training Day from 2001, which earned Denzel Washington his, his second Oscar, his first one for being a lead actor, and I believe his last one so far. And Up in the Air, which stars George Clooney, 
Vera Farmiga and Anna Kendrick in her breakout role. That is also an excellent film and certainly one of the ones that would be um, one of the best of 2009, way back when. And I saw that when it was brand new in theaters. Other than that, that's just about it for original films that are coming on Netflix on November 1st. As for November 4th, there is... Uh, there are two um, Netflix original films. The first one is called Ellison Oba, The King's Horseman, which is a 2022 film, and it is a Nollywood drama. And Nollywood is the film studio, or rather the figure of speech of a film studio in Nigeria. And those films are becoming more and more uh, popular in the Western world. So... I can't guarantee that I'm going to see that film. One one movie that I probably will guarantee I'll see, uh, I'll be most likely to see, is Enola Holmes Two, which is the sequel to the movie Enola Holmes, which was released in early 2020, right after the pandemic hit and everyone was just or most people were homebound. But Millie Bobby Brown is coming back to solve another conspiracy. And she's now a detective for hire, and she takes on her first official case to find a missing girl as the sparks of a dangerous conspiracy ignite a mystery that requires the help of friends and Sherlock himself to unravel. Sherlock Holmes in this movie, and as well as the last movie, is played by Henry Cavill. And I actually thought, as, as much as people don't like him as Superman in the DC Extended Universe, I think he actually makes a pretty decent Sherlock Holmes particularly in a film where Millie Bobby Brown is front and center. The movie also co-stars Helena Bonham Carter, David Thewlis, and Susan Wacoma, amongst other people. So it looks like a fun film, and, <clears throat> and it's a film that I will likely see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.